Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am Sarah Crompton, and I'm the Arts Editor-in-Chief of the Daily Telegraph. Um, And it gives me a great pleasure to welcome you all to a session with someone who needs no introduction, um, but who uh, last night described himself as being like AC Grayling, but with key changes. Did I say that? Yeah. Good joke. It's quite good, yeah. (laughs) I think I said an inarticulate AC Grayling. Um, uh, But he is. He's a comedian, he's a musician, and now he is the writer of um, one of the most successful British musicals of recent years in Matilda. So we're going to uh, talk about his career, then at the end I will turn it over to you to ask some questions. So what I thought we might talk about was when you were sort of young and sitting at your piano, badly tuned in, in Australia, could you ever have imagined that this would be where you ended up doing all these things that you now do? Um, no, no. Um, and, and genuinely, uh, through a sort of lack of imagination, probably, um, I didn't have... Uh, I don't know, maybe it's growing up in Perth or just growing up in a family that weren't musos or whatever. My aspirations extended to... Uh, a piano bar, really. I, at one point in my teens, especially because I'm mostly self-taught, I just assumed that meant there were um, massive limitations on how far I could take music. And also it wasn't my first interest. I was more into sport and just I've got a lot of siblings and we'd just run around and go to the beach and stuff. So um, music was just this sort of um, habit. And we all played, so it was a family thing. Um, but... Uh, yeah, at one point I remember thinking, if I could just sit in the corner of a room and play piano and someone would pay me, that would be just incredible. And, uh, and then I got to there and I thought, oh, this sucks. This <laughs> <laughs> fucking awful. Um, and the, the smoking ban hadn't been in and people would sit, you know, in a sort of that way that you think is romantic. They'd sit around the piano with an ashtray on the piano talking to each other and in order to... Uh, not blow smoke into each other's faces, they'd go... (sighs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, I've passively uh, acquired lung cancer. And then, uh, yeah, so uh, I do try to um, place myself in the head of the 21-year-old me in order to try and get some perspective on what and has at, happened, and I failed, and at but what it's what point nice. did you come up with the idea, with the image, if you like, with the mascara and the hair straightener, and suddenly, sort of, you know, well, the rock god? that was sort of late 2004, so I kind of... Uh, around that time, I, I was doing what I've always done, which is um, not concentrating on one thing, so I was acting and playing bands and... Um, piano bars and MDing for cabaret artists and all this sort of thing, but I um, I think mostly because of feedback from a, am I being, I can be closer to the mic, I think you just turned me up. Hi. Um, <laughs> I think from, uh, I got some feedback from a record company that my um, band stuff was hard to pigeonhole because some of it was really satirical and some of it was a bit serious, so I thought if I extracted the funny stuff and went and did a kind of cabaret show, then it would help me 
focus. So I just sort of thought I'd do this, and then this became the thing I was doing. And I did that for about a year, and at some point thought, um, well, this is a show. And coming from a theatre kind of background, once I got in my head that it was a show, I think I felt I needed to be a showman a bit more. So I kind of got some makeup, and I, I don't, it wasn't really that conscious, except that what was great about growing up in Perth and then living in Melbourne is I wasn't under the pressure that people are here of like, well, comedians are like this, and it's all very alternative. And I was just like, oh, makeup makes me look funny. Yeah. <laughs> and where did the bare feet come from? Because you usually perform in. I was born with them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh. I've been asked that question a lot of times and never come up with that <laughs> yeah. answer. It's, I know. It took me, it took me six it. years to yeah. come up with that witty repost. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, that was more um, born of growing up in the 90s in Fremantle in West Australia and everyone was sort of about the same time John Butler was busking in, you know, the mall in Frio. We were all just wearing... Happy pants and bare feet. And, Isn't it hard yeah. to do the piano pedals with bare feet? It worries. <laughs> no, it the, the, pe the pedals aren't very complicated. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Once you get used to it, it's quite hard to go back. Actually, to have weight weight on your foot. Um, yeah, it's it, it's an affectation, but it's it's mine. You know? <laughs> and uh, and it does become something that's quite hard to turn back on. So I, I wear shoes when I'm not doing comedy gigs these days, but there's something very, very freeing about anything that makes you feel um, a sense of ownership over your space when you're a performer is worth its weight in gold because, especially in comedy, that's all you've got is confidence. That's mm. the only thing that matters, really. Um, you don't even need punchlines. You just have to pause before you say them. And... <laughs> People laugh, so it's just about, it's just about um, um, being, um, yeah, owning your space. And bare feet helped me do that when I was doing tiny little rooms, and I was scared. Did you? I mean, you. What you do is is quite unusual because you are funny and you play the piano. I mean, did you have any kind of conscious models that you were following that you thought? Or uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I didn't watch... I, I, I think the year I started doing comedy, I went and saw Ross Noble, and that was the first time I'd ever seen a comedian live um, do a show. I think I'd seen some mates do a stand-up competition once in Perth, but it's just... I don't know if the... I think the English um, take, take how big comedy is here, not for granted, but it's such part of culture, it's just embedded, whereas there's... In a town like Perth, um, oh, that's a photographer. I thought I'd already lost one. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll. Uh, I, uh, I've got a joke about priest. Um, uh, you know, in a town like Perth, I mean, it's a big enough town, but there's not really an audience for everything. So comedy just comedy was like a quirky little thing that a few weirdos went and saw at one pub. You know, the Brass Monkey, sort of once a week. And uh, so, so it wasn't part of my life. Uh, I guess I grew up with um, Rodney Roode and Kevin Bloody Wilson, um, uh, who are kind of slightly racist Australian um, 
com- that's not quite true. They're not slightly racist. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, so I guess I had that, but I hate to think that's an influence. But I, my grand took me to see Gilbert and, Gilbert and Sullivan, and I think that's probably as big an influence as anything. I didn't really listen to Lyra or Victor Borger. Or... Yeah, because people compare you to Victor Borger, really, I suppose. Yeah, it's... It's my European virtuosity. That, um, hey, yeah. So, uh, I loved, um, I love and loved any music, uh, any music that used lyrics. Um, well, that that's slightly what, subversively, I guess. Yeah, that that is also your defining quality, and that's why the AC Grayling joke is not entirely a joke. I mean, in the sense that um, I'm being. I have big hair. <laughs> in the sense you have, uh, words are the thing that matters most of all in your songs and the lyric and the lyrical complexity. And I wondered how you, st- how you write them. I mean, how do songs happen for you, if you like? Um, I, I mean, you know, obviously I don't think they're, they're special, so it's, uh, I, I don't find them... Well, no, I, I kind of get that I... Um, that not everyone writes like me, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm the worst person to ask, really. Except that I, I can both honest, I can honestly say that they are both. Incre- I find it easy and um, very hard. In, in, by which I mean, writing songs the way I write with hyper dense lyrics and kind of, you know, long build ups to reveals or whatever it is that I do and this sort of relentless pursuit of an idea to the extent that it's absurd um, and all that. that. That's what I do by instinct. That's why I'm a comedian now is because I always did that and eventually I went, oh, this is actually comedy, not music, you know. Um, <laughs> or at least it's, a theatri- it's theatrical. All I do is write theatrical songs. Sometimes I perform myself and sometimes kids perform them for me. But... Um, uh, uh, <laughs> make me money, nine-year-old. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, so, so that that is my instinct, wherever it comes from. Um, um, but but uh, I find sitting down increasingly as as um, as I write more and it, I, I, the pressure of knowing the next thing you write is going to be seen by a lot of people, it, it just gets more and more tiring even thinking about it because I don't get to do the five minute, oh, I wrote that one, you know, I wrote that one in ten minutes late one night, you know, and because you can write songs, I can write songs like that, um, and sometimes they're the best songs, but it's unfortunately it's not really what I do. What I have to do is these things that I like doing, massive Sudokus, these kind of shit, well, I've got this idea and now I have to undo it and undo it and undo it. So, so it starts with an idea and then you do the lyrics first? Well, it tends to start with a lyrical concept or hook um, and then that, that hook belongs to music and then I have to fill in everything else. So, I, I'm, yeah, it, it feels to me like that's how songs write themselves, really. I don't... I, I know you can write a lyric, and, and I've written songs that I'm very fond of that started with... I've got a song I'm working on at the moment that's not a, not a comic song, that is it's just... I wrote as a poem, and then I'm still finding what the music is. But mostly, especially with comedy, you find where you want to arrive 
if it's only a ginger can call another ginger ginger. Um, and that has a, it's quite difficult rhythm. And so it, it belongs to something musically. And you also have to choose a musical style that either contrasts or enhances the blah, blah. blah. And so you find a style and then, you, then, you've, then you're trapped. And, and then your lyrics have to fit in. I mean, that seems to me the sort of obvious way to do it, I suppose. Mm. You should try it. <laughs> don't think I'd be as good as just you. And do you have to... I mean, is it a process where you shut yourself in a room with a piano and work at it? Is it, is it actually kind of... Or can you do it on the move? And... Yeah, no, I don't write well on tour and I don't wake up in the middle of the night or get drunk and have inspiration. Not like yesterday or anything. No. Yeah, it's... Um, I have ideas that come out of conversations and stuff and I just jot down a, you know, some, a note that says something like, write a song about, you know, whatever, privacy. Or it's my, I want to write a song about, um, you know, journalism and the balance between privacy and freedom of information or whatever. And so I just, I just write that down. And then I go, oh, I've had an idea, that's awesome. And that's a day's work. And, um, <laughs> And then I go and do whatever, and sing or something. And, um, and then one day I'll sit down and do it. And actually, the, the, I've learnt over time, especially writing Matilda, which was such a sort of deadline-based thing, um, this, the earlier I get in, the better, all that. I, I think most people who write anything discover pretty soon after they've got a career that um, that inspiration's not going to cut it anymore. And actually, if you've had a good night's sleep and have breakfast, you should start then not do your emails then, because actually that's when you've got your energy. You have lunch and you need a kip, you know. <laughs> and where does, I mean, do you see yourself as um, wanting to change the world, if you like, to make political points? Because some of the songs are very funny, but they're quite fierce and they're quite, um, sh well, they're very sharp about modern society. So do you see yourself on this sort of mission to change things or just... I certainly wasn't motivated by that. Um, I think at some point I recognised that being opinionated under a jaunty uh, um, harmonic bass was uh, sort of interesting to look at and got laughs. Um, but until I started doing com comedy actually drove me to be more opinionated so I didn't have opinions and look for a genre through which I could express them. I had a genre that people were suddenly coming to watch me do and I thought, oh, fuck, what? sorry, it's morning. Um, <laughs> what do I write about now, you yeah. know? Uh, and at about the time that I found comedy and found an audience, my lifelong interest in belief was getting much more um, uh, fattened up with actual information born of reading actual books. Um, and so as I was firming up, or at least getting more and more frustrated by um, how stupid half the things people think are, um, I was also had this career and they sort of came together. Um, and, and I think what comedy and music both do, but music especially, given that it's a confined form, just like poetry or whatever, and especially in the style that I make it, which is um, strict in rhyme structure and sometimes, um, it, it makes you 
um, try and condense your ideas into... It, ma it makes you aim for pith. Right. Uh, even if it's quite wordy pith, it's still confined. And that's a really nice challenge to go, you know, I'm angry about the long-term effect of um, the church making ethical judgments about people who aren't quite like them. You know, I I'm cross about that. How do I say that in a way that it's over in four minutes and makes people laugh? And I always fail on the first one. <laughs> um, so I tend to be more like six. But, um, yeah... I think it's a really nice challenge and I think I owe my career to, to, to taking that challenge to go, well, how do you make the things I'm angry about um, funny? Most comedy is about that. Some people are angry about bus tickets. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as a, I mean, the song that springs most directly to mind is Pope because that's both yeah. that is under four minutes and very funny. Yeah, it's nice and quick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to say what I feel about that in under three minutes. <laughs> And, I mean, has that, um, does that bring you a lot of um, abuse back? I mean, do people attack you for that? Yeah, sort of such uh, as that? there's sort of whole websites dedicated to being angry with my Pope song. And um, <laughs> I don't feel great about that. I've always wanted <laughs> websites. They're kind of like fan sites, a similar level of obsession. Um, uh, it's just more death threats and less threats of sex. Um, <laughs> uh, the... Um, I, I think I deserve abuse for the Pope song because abuse is the... Um, the I, I chose to use abuse and so I have to cop abuse. Um, although the song does a better job at explaining itself and why it uses abusive terminology than any of the abuse I've ever got back. Um, and, and I feel strongly about that, and to the extent that I might sound like an asshole, uh, that I might sound conceited about it, but I, um, I don't mind anger, uh, but get it right, you know. Um, don't, don't apply an ad hominem attack unless you're going to back up why, you, why ad hom is relevant in this situation, and don't make non-sequiturs, tell me why you're angry, you get, get it right. And, and uh, I still disagree, but I'll respect you for, for um, sharpening your tool to an extent that you can stick it where you want, you know. Um, the Pope song, uh, over time my songs, uh, um, I, I, I like them less and less over time. They've, my affections for them fade very quickly after I've written them. I no longer find them funny, obviously, because the joke doesn't surprise me, and I, I often go, oh, I didn't quite say that right. But the Pope song is, um, it's, I, I, I can't, it's, it's exactly what I want to say, which is that um, I don't think anyone deserves abuse, but I also don't think anyone deserves uh, any sort of inherent respect um, you, you, you get to be as respected as your behaviour. And actually the Pope, his pre-papal um, behaviour as an administrator, allegedly, of, you know, well, that letter that he hasn't even denied saying, please don't tell the cops about any abuse you find out about, come to me, which, you know, makes me shake with rage, that it's even acceptable to discuss it um, as, a, as a viable ethical thing to do. Um, actually, that's the least of the things, you know, telling Africans they shouldn't wear condoms is uh, so much worse. So, as you can tell, I don't know where this anger comes from, I'm not a, a Catholic or anything, um, 
It's just I'm really interested in ethics and what we base them on. And having a big dress and saying that some 2,000-year-old dude's magic is just not fucking good enough. Excuse me. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so if you can make that funny in under three minutes, it's awesome. <laughs> what interested me about Matilda is that um, uh, under the uh, auspices of a, a family musical, you do actually also smuggling quite a lot of anger, and particularly anger about... Um, uh, every parent thinking their child's genius and pushing them very hard in order to be um, a, a genius. And were you conscious of that? Were you, I mean, is that your views of education, that you feel um, we've got it wrong, essentially, which is... No, I d I d I, I, I'm nowhere near as um, preachy about that stuff as I am about something like the subject we are just talking about, in, in that I'm, uh, you know, my opinions on what's good education can alter on a, on a single paper, you know? If you go, oh, this is what the data shows about how we educate our kids, I go, oh, I didn't realise that, okay. You know, I, I, it's, I, it's ongoing, obviously, the job of figuring out how to make these pure little balls of genes into happy people by giving them the right experiences. Um, I love Miracle because um, uh, the, the poster on Matilda says it's appropriate for kids six and up. And of course, all the parents go, oh, it's for, for six-year-olds and up. Well, my five-year-old will be fine. <laughs> because everyone thinks their kids are a year advanced for everyone else. <laughs> it's so funny, because you do, right? When you've got little kids, they get to five and you're like, oh my God, this kid's amazing. <laughs> they've got language and they can articulate ideas. I mean, surely this is a normal. This kid's incredible. And so everyone brings their four and a half, five-year-old, and halfway through they're going, Mummy! And you feel, and, uh, <laughs> But um, about, about um, you know, two minutes into the musical, there's all these people saying, my mummy says, I'm a miracle. And all the parents see they go, this is great. You love this, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think the uh, don't think awareness ever happened. Um, how did we, how yeah. did Matilda come around just in it, about in just a simple way? How did you end up writing it? Well, they um, the Royal Shakespeare Company had the rights, and Dennis Kelly had written a, a draft script with um, every now and then the word song and a question mark, um, <laughs> and uh, they they were looking for someone to write songs, and I think Jeannie O'Hare, who's the literary, I think it was her idea to come and watch my show. And I found out um, Matthew Watchers, the director, came to watch my show at the Bloomsbury, so this is years ago. Um, and I, love, I like this because I, I never really found out how it came about, but he said he, he watched the whole show. And at the end of the show, as I walked off, he went, um, yeah, well, he's good, but he's not, he's not right because he'd just watched a lot of words and brainy stuff. and. I mean, brainy as in um, head, not heart. And, uh, and he had decided that I wasn't right for it. And then I came back on and did an encore. And that's when I earned the job, because I do these sentimental encores. And I've always felt slightly um, self-indulgent about doing sentimental encores. It's so nice to think that if I hadn't have done that that night, um, I wouldn't have um, got the job that I want. Um, so yeah, they, they asked me and um, when I got called into this meeting and I didn't know what it was about and Matthew said, have you heard of Roald Dahl's Matilda? We're, we've got the rights to make it into a musical. I just went... <gasps> and uh, sort of taught myself into a job. And was it... It, was, it wasn't the easiest process, though, to do it, was it? I mean, it... No. There was quite a lot of rewriting. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, unlike comedy, which is just you writing what you think and then probably resisting the urge to edit too much because um, trying to trying to uh, top down uh, manage a comedy set's probably not the right way to do it. It's meant to be an outpouring of megalomaniacal sort of um, indulgences. The, the getting out of the way of your idea, you know, opening that conduit between you and the audience is the whole point. Whereas theatre, especially doing an adaptation of a story that everyone knows, there's a sense of we know collectively, the writer, the director, the dramaturg, and me and whoever else, the musical supervisors, and we know vaguely what we're trying to do. We're trying to create this story. We're trying to deliver this directly into people's hearts. And, and so um, finding that was, I don't know, a million metaphors chipping away at a rock to make a sculpture or something. <clears throat> but also working with Dennis, who usually works on his own, and he working with I, he working with me, him working with me. Dennis and I wrote a play. Dennis was writing a play with me. <laughs> Dennis working with me was hard because we, um, yeah, we're used to doing our own thing. And uh, in hindsight, I'm incredibly fond of that year and a half or whatever it was because I love looking back and going, we worked hard at that. And I set myself that I really, I, I said to Sarah, my wife, I've got to not get to the end of this and look back and think, oh, I could have done a bit more work on that, mm. which you often do in life, you think, oh. And uh, so I was absolutely adamant that despite the fact that naturally I'm a procrastinator and I'm probably quite lazy. But how was it when they, you know, rejected a song and a whole song went in the bin? How did oh, you yeah. react? When they killed Hortensia, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it, I mean, uh, it's totally fine, really. It just takes a little while to get your head around. Um, there's a character in the book, Matilda, called Hortensia, who, interestingly, takes the focus off the protagonist considerably and actually takes her power away, but it doesn't matter because Dahl wrote sort of in vignettes and they were for a chapter a night, you know. That's why they're so brilliant. You always just chuck in a character and Hortensia was this naughty character and eventually Matthew said um, we need to put Hortensia into Matilda so that she drives the revolution and uh, I understood that intellectually but I just couldn't see it for months and I was on tour in Australia and I was meant to be writing while I was on the road and I just, because she had these two wicked songs and, um, and uh, eventually I came back and at the last minute wrote Naughty and, and My House which, and, and uh, they happened very late so sometimes you just have to let yourself um, uh, not write for a few months while, you, while the back part of your brain gets around what your front part already knows. And was there a point where you knew that it was going to be the same? I mean it has been extraordinary, it goes to Br uh, Broadway next year. You're going to say Brisbane. Oh, I, was oh. going to, I was actually going to say Bristol, which is going to be weird. <laughs> hey, we're going to Brisbane. <laughs> yeah. Goes to Broadway next year. Um, was there a point at which you could see that it was going to be this huge success? Uh, no, but there was a point... No, there weren't any... There was no sort of revelation. It got slowly better and we solved. It's problem solving. It's like the Sudoku again. You just keep changing stuff and that means other stuff has to change. The, when the uh, professional musical theatre actors came in and workshopped it 
even for the very first workshop, which is so far away from what we ended up with, um, their excitement made me, oh, hold on, just because uh, they immediately thought it was going to be great. Um, so that was brilliant. And then when it opened in Stratford, um, before the reviews came out, I thought it was good already. And then when the reviews came out, I'm, I felt very, very glad that other people thought so too. They were better than I'd hoped, you know. Mm. And then when it transferred, oh, it's just, it, it's amazing, really. It's a wonderful show. And how has it changed things for you? How has it, for you, how has it changed people's view of you, really? Because you were, you know, you did have the, the, the sort of alternative comedian thing. So people who went to Edinburgh knew you, all yeah. the people who bought CDs knew you and yeah. the videos. But how has it changed things for you? Well, um, I think... I've had a wonderful version of um, quick growth in that um, over the last five years I've gone from just starting out in comedy to now having a really good career where I can sort of make choices about what I want to do. But it, it's not an X Factor thing um, and it's not a lot, it was, it's just a really straight graph, a, an exponential sort of, oh no, exponential does that. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, no, yeah, well, no, it must be an exponential, exponential curve because um, my audiences have sort of doubled every year, um, although it's flattened out now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and after this, they're going to start... Mm. Um, uh, um, but in 2010, um, Matilda opened the night after my orchestra show opened, and around then, suddenly, everyone started going, oh, OK, that this is a bit... Um, there's a bit more going on here than just swearing about God. And, um, and then I did the proms, and the proms, I think, um, inserted me uh, in a quite well-lubricated way into the, um, the clenched uh, sphincter of English, of uh, the English middle classes. Yeah, I, 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 um, I have inserted myself into British culture, and, it, and actually, it's not clenched. It's actually the, um, the English are incredibly uh, great about going, oh, you're different, you're, you're working hard. You know, I, I feel um, with the proms and Matilda and you know, a little bit of other stuff, I s sort of suddenly last year, towards the end of last year, was um, just part of your cultural smorgasbord, and it's an amazing feeling. Yeah, and you were described as, uh, you know, the best thing to have to the British musical since Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, who is someone you admire, which always slightly surprises me, because I imagine yeah. you not being quite cool enough for you. The Evening Standard want, want uh, Lloyd Webber and I to hate each other. Um, every time I talk to anyone, um, they kind of make a headline <laughs> about how I'm... It's so weird. They, that's, they want that conflict. They want the newcomer to be disdainful of, you know, the granddaddy. It's just really. But would you like, like to go on and, and, and be like him and have Everyone a career? Grow up to earn the disdain of the English public. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I might get that disdain because when you work with him, you know, I don't want the Ben Elton thing to happen where everyone feels betrayed. But I, I think when you're a comedian and, and you're saying anything subversive, people assume your subversion is a, an impulse, you know. Um, but 
being, I, I'm not impulsively, I'm not an iconoclast, you know, by, by nature. I'm iconoclastic about the, the icons that I think are, um, are puffed up, you know, that don't deserve to be there. I'm, I'm not, I don't just hate anything big and popular at all. I'm, I'm quite sort of conservative and, and the ten, I mean, this is a whole other subject, but the tendency of both Australian and British, probably everyone to kind of uh, build, build up their put people on a pedestal and then, you know. I mean, Lloyd Webber wrote JC Superstar at 23, uh, and it remains probably the most subversive musical ever written. It's, it's Rice's version, of course, because they're his words, but Lloyd Webber's all over that shit. And um, you, you can't take that away from him. You, you can't take that or Evita or um, Cats, which was revolutionary to do that, or at Starlet Express, which is an incredible thing to do. I mean, it's crazy. What the hell were they thinking? They were absolutely radical. And you sh somehow time allows us to discard that. And I don't care about rich people. I'm totally disinterested in whether someone's wealthy or in their politics. He wrote JC Superstar at 23. Just, that's enough. I don't and you're care now... about his baggy eyes. It's, I'm not interested in it. <laughs> So, and I want to be judged like that too. I want to be judged on my work and I don't want, I don't want people to think that I've sold out. There's, there's, there's no such thing as selling out. You've just got your ideas and what, you, what you're doing at the time and you should either accept or reject an artist's offer. But, but the fact that you don't like what they've done, I don't think the fact that everyone decided they'd, that Ben Elton was a class traitor means that, that we should be disdainful of the fact that he, he helped write The Young Ones and Blackout. You know? And do you, you're about to be in Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just get exactly what you bloody want, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> and, um, uh, and you're playing Judas? Yeah, I'm um, playing Judas. Judas is the role. I've got to, I've got to give the director a lecture, actually. I'm, 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 I'm having to resist the urge to um, be a, a JC bully about it and sort of go, well, it should sound like this and you should <laughs> costumes like that. And, um, yeah, Judas is the protagonist, you know. And uh, it's, people don't realise that. People are like, you're doing a Christian musical, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, listen to it. It's amazing. <laughs> and would you like to write another musical? I mean, is that something that you... Yeah, like desperately. I should be doing it now. I mean, I'm completely... No one asked you. <laughs> it's, uh, no, I've got, um, I've, like, just backed up offers to write really great ideas. Um, but I've decided I want to be an actor, so... Yeah. And yes, so tell me, you've also gone to um, Hollywood and uh, a little bit. So what are you up to there and how is it? I'm still in Hollywood in my head. <laughs> um, uh, it's good fun. Uh, I mean, I know that making telly is kind of boring. Compared You're in Californication. I'm in Californication, right, which is a TV show about sex and drugs. And it's kind of, it's a really interesting thing if you haven't seen it in that... It, you know, we, we, we like to think America's conservative and stuff, but it's just everything non-conservative comes out of there as well as a whole lot of nutbags. But um, the Californication's kind of this amoral, non-self-judgmental piece about this completely tragic sex addict idiot, you know, this constant downfall of this writer. And I'm playing a sort of rock star druggie. Um, but I, I've been... In, the Hollywood Hills in this massive mansion, which is my house on this location. 
and the, the main room in this huge mansion is covered in huge pictures of my character, um, who's a rock star called Atticus Fetch, like paintings of me with a lamb at my feet and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was on set the other day with Natasha McAlone. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. She's an incredible actress who's an English actress. And I'd never really met her. And the first shot of the day, I just had to open the double doors to this mansion in absolutely nothing, except a little sock over my bollocks. Um, <laughs> and uh, sort of go, good morning. And that was my first scene. And um, I thought, this is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to act and, and I've always thought, oh, I wonder if that's over for me. And, um, and I had this little plan to start doing a bit more acting next year. And I'd set up a play I'm going to do in Sydney uh, next summer. And I thought, oh, I'll sort of ease back into acting. And suddenly this role came up and then JC came up and in a weird way, I, you know, I believe in the secret, you know. You, uh, you, you have to pro project your desires and they will come to you. Obviously, that's completely not true in any way <laughs> um, whatsoever. And that's a, that's a lie to keep women stupid. <laughs> that's what it's for. That's what Oprah's for. Oprah and the women she gets on it, it's to keep women thinking it's about instinct. Um, women, women read books, don't they? Yes. A lot. Real books, not fairy tale books. Yeah. Sorry, the secret, the secret just really annoys me. But, I'm, I'm, but then again, she would cite someone like me as someone who proves her rule in that basically in the last few years everything that I've wanted has come into my lap. And do you ever... Do you ever... <laughs> <laughs> do you um, ever worry? <laughs> do you ever um, worry that to, you know that success will be difficult to handle because it has come very fast for you, and you're, you're kind of famously stable under that rock god persona, you know, with a long-term relationship and children and so on. Do you, I mean, is there a sense in which um, success and women throwing themselves at you and all that is, you worry about it? Um, yeah, lots and lots and lots. Especially with uh, Californication, when I got, I just happened to be in LA and I, I auditioned, they didn't ask me to, do, I, I had to audition and and in LA everything moves fast so the day I auditioned that night I got told I had the part and the day after I was doing photos for these you know prop prop for the props department um, and I just was sweating all day I thought I had a fever I was I did have a fever probably but it was just a sort of panic um, and I didn't panic I wasn't panicking because I thought I couldn't do the role or anything I just um, you just feel like you're you're, you've hopped on a slide that you don't know, you know, like blah, blah. Um, it's really scary. And it's scary for my family. My mum doesn't like it. I, I rang up and I said, Mum, I've got a role in a TV show in LA. She went, well, if you want to just go to LA, then as long as you don't care about your family, cha <laughs> <laughs> um, I love you too. Um, uh, you know, they, they, we are worried about it. My, my immediate family and my old family. Um, uh, mostly because, I don't know, it's a non-specific anxiety really. I, 
you get used to being recognised and stuff. That's fine. Um, it's not. It's not ideal, but it's obviously stupid to think that that's not going to happen. It's not always ideal. It's often incredibly lovely, but it's not always ideal. Um, I'm probably most worried that my children aren't going to get what I got, which is a gift of an upbringing. I, I, I'm constantly trying to work out how I can give my kids a West Australian, anonymous West Australian upbringing whilst being famous in London. Uh, so it's scared, yeah, it scares shit out of me. But you know, I'll be dead soon, so... Um, <laughs> you've got to, I mean, I, I really think that I'm one of the incredibly lucky people who's, who, where, where I get to be, um, have a real adventure in, in my life. And that's just, you can't really ask for more than that. Having said that, that shouldn't mean carte blanche on decisions. You shouldn't be undiscerning in the way you, you, you proceed. And you shouldn't be selfish. And I'm definitely selfish. I, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. I had this conversation with Sarah because um, I was meant to be home a lot this year, writing another musical and spending more time with the family. I toured in Australia for a month earlier in the year and I went, that's it, I'm not going to spend any more time away from the kids. And then this job came up and I said, Sarah, I'm going to be away most of the summer, basically, and when I fly back in, I'm going to be flying straight to the Hay Book Festival and rambling on, jet-lagged about myself. And, um, and she went, well, that's crap, but, you know, you've always wanted to act. And Sarah actually is kind of a fan of my acting. She's pretty un ruffled by anything I do, but she's always gone, I hope you're going to get back into acting, because she used to like that. And um, so she was really supportive of that, and then Jesus Christ Superstar came up, and it's another month where I'm going to be on the road, and she went, Tim, I think, um, I think, I think you have to say no, it's too, you know, when, when, when's this going to end? You said you're going to be home this year, fine, a month, fine, three more months, and now another month, like, JC Superstar will always be there, you can do that role another time, and I went, yeah, totally, this is definitely too much. So, um, what are we going to do? Because I'm fucking doing it, you know, like, because I'm not going to not do it. Yeah. Because I've been wanting to play Judas for 20 years, and now I get to do it in an arena with Sporty Spice, you know. <laughs> um, and so, so uh, I'm a, at some point I'm going to have to make some decisions based on something other than ticking my own boxes. You okay. Know. Hopefully not too soon. We're, we're beginning to get into our, our countdown and I want to give you a chance to ask questions. So let me come to you and there are uh, microphones that will come towards you. There are two, Hi, people, two people in the uh, front. There's one here. Uh, hi, Tim. Hi, mate. Uh, yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Oh, it's Andy. Hi. <laughs> Is it, is that, yeah. yeah. Um, I was just wondering if Hortensia's songs will ever be um, aired in public. Didn't I sing it at that thing in Stratford? Did I not do it? Now that she's gone. I don't think so. Do you know, um, Hortensia's first song was Revolting Children, so that got into the musical in the end. Um, the second one was a song called Now That She's Gone, which is about what happens to, speaking of um, iconoclasts, what, what happens to the people who are fighters when, when, the, when the thing they're fighting against topples. Um, so Hortensia was kind of the rebel, and when Trunchbull falls, it went into this big ballad where Hortensia's going, now, now what? My, my enemy, my, my, the antagonist has gone to my protagonist. How do I exist? It's a bit of a um, stop and kind of um, self-referential sort of piece of bollocks. And actually, when we killed Hortensia, we killed 
um, the self-awareness of the musical, which is really, really important. Matilda's fun, but it's not mocking its own genre. You know, musicals mm -hmm. these days, because everyone's so embarrassed about musicals, that you tend to write Book of Mormon, which is a musical about musicals, and that's brilliant. But what Matthew helped me do is go, no, you can actually just write a musical. You don't have to write a musical that references musical traditions and mocks them. And what Hortensia's song, now that she's gone, was doing was being meta. Yeah. And uh, actually now, because of Matilda, I'm passionate about writing non-meta musicals. I want to see if I can write musicals. Yeah. Right. There's someone else That's there. That's not the question you had. Uh, I might, <laughs> uh, yeah, I reckon it might survive now that she's gone. It, it belongs somewhere. Quite funny. Hi, Tim. Hi. Um, this is a question for my husband who's hurt his ankle and can't be here this oh, morning. Oh, baby boy. Um, <laughs> he, like you, is a passionate atheist and he loves. He can't be a passionate atheist. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, he can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but listening to your song Lullaby, which is one of our favourites, uh -huh. he said he wants to know: was there at no point during that you felt you were in any way tempting fate as a father? Oh, so Lullaby is a song about how um, when your kids don't go to sleep, you just want to shake them, and um, it, it, it's uh, <laughs> it's about the sort of violent thoughts that fleet through your head when you're ultra tired, and and uh, it's taboo to talk about the fact that. You know, but, but Sarah and I have quite dark sense of humour, so very when, when our kids, and this is obviously upsetting to anyone who's, obviously upsetting to anyone whose kids have died or whatever, um, but, and, and you know, I've got friends who've lost kids and stuff, so, so you do this dark thing where you, but it's about the privacy of your own relationship, and we used to say things like, you know, go check on the baby. I used to do stand up about this, you know, what, why check on the baby? I mean, if it's, if it's dead, like, we can't do anything about it, we might as well get some sleep, you know. Right? And, and it's terrible, right? But these are... Uh... It's true, it's, it's true, it's true. And, and so I wrote this thing, Lullaby, which has the lyric, where is the line between patting and hitting, when is rocking rocking and when is it shaking? And you know... Go to sleep. Um, and, and, and a lot of, I, I have mothers of young children stop me on the street and go, thank you so much, you got me through last night, you know. Um, <laughs> it's not, I wanted, I wanted women saying that to me years ago. Um, it's not, but, uh, but the question's about tempting fate, which is um, very interesting because uh, uh, I find it interesting and I could get boring about it for about five minutes, but I won't. But um, uh, I, I try to... I think superstition is something that one, or at least for myself, should um, uh, divest yourself. I think you should shed superstition as much as you possibly can, because I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's not uh, helpful, um, and often it's harmful. So I try to, I have no superstitions in my life. Um, but the one I found so hard to let go of is touch wood, especially about, because um, I'm paranoid about getting sick all the time because I'm a singer, um, that I would always go, oh, I haven't been sick this year, you know. Um, and I, I would demand um, hand-carved chairs in order for there <laughs> to be wood available to me, um, if I could available to me. And, uh, and it's, it's ridiculous, right? But we think, speaking of words and the power of words, which is what my show's about, we think that we 
and The Secret, beautiful, it's all coming together, that book, The Secret. Who's that Australian woman who wrote it? Do we know what I'm talking about when I talk about The Secret? Yeah. Yes. It's about manifesting uh, through affirmation. Um, words don't change the world in the way they do, right? They do, but they don't, it's not magic. Words change the world in that you can hurt people by proclaiming things, but they don't manifest themselves. If you, I always say to people when they get on the plane, don't have a plane crash. And, and there's a sense that maybe that will mean the odds on the plane crashing are higher. Or that if I do a joke about my baby dying, the odds on the baby dying are greater. And there's no way in which that can be the case. Just. Unless, I guess, unless you do that witch doctor thing where you get a tribe that's so enamoured of its own superstitions that you can kill yourself with anxiety if a witch doctor yeah. waves a, a, a chicken bone at you or whatever. But um, it's incredibly empowering to get rid of superstition and, th and that one's the hardest one. It's deep within us because we are megalomaniacs. We think the world revolves around us. We think that we can make a plane crash with our words. That's actually what we think. And if you say it like that, it's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. And if my, my baby won't die because I, I'm going to do this bit in my next show, actually, which is an experiment you have to do in some psych courses, which is um, make the audience say, I hope my daughter dies tomorrow in a car crash. I do. I hope my daughter dies tomorrow in a car crash on the way home from Hay. I mean, that sounds hard. It's not hard. It doesn't mean fucking anything. No one here, th <laughs> no one here thinks I want that, and my, I'm not going to manifest it. It's incredibly empowering to be yeah. able to say it. It hurts, but it's cool. Can't do it. Okay. I'll tweet if she does, eh? <laughs> I wave at magpies. That's the one I can't drop. Um, anyone else? I can't see, obviously, because I'm blind as a bat. Yes. Uh, you just. Um led straight on to the question I was going to ask you, which is um, at what point in your life or what uh, influence in your life um, made you decide that you could get up on a stage and get so close to being taboo, saying things that probably everybody in here would be scared to even think, let alone say in public? I, I think it was always... Um, I think I always tended to do that anyway. When I was a teenager, I'd always have people go, oh, Tim, like that. And uh, I used to embarrass myself. So I have a compulsion to say um, things that I assume everyone's thinking. <laughs> um, they're sometimes not, but um, <laughs> obviously, often enough, they are. But I don't, I'm, again, like the iconoclasm thing, I'm not, I'm not a compulsive taboo exposer, you know, the Frankie Boyle style of, I'm going to say it because you can't say it, and you're going to laugh because it'll shock you. And I respect that. I, I, I don't watch a lot of Frankie. I don't, it's, it's not my style of comedy or whatever. Although it sort of is, but I, I think, um, I think, I hope that I'm not talking about taboos for the sake of it. Although, no, I do sometimes. I just... Um, I guess there's comedy in 
highlighting the things that we all think but we don't say. And then there's empowerment behind it if you articulate why it's important that, um, without getting too boring, which I verge on, I'm sure, or, or, or step over all the time. But, but I think... Um, I think taboos can, can do damage, and I guess I'm interested in those ones. Um, and I'm also just interested in the vestigial taboos, the taboos that have been around forever but don't actually help anyone. Uh, I don't know, I'll have to think about it a bit more. Why do I think I can say them? I don't know, I just never, I never thought. I mean, I admire Yeah, well, it's nice. Um, I guess I've earned my way into a place where it's appropriate. Um, and there's times, uh, there's time and a place. You come and see me live, I'll talk about, you know, fisting or whatever. Whereas you go see Matilda, there's very, there's very <laughs> few. There's, there's, there's barely three fisting references. Um, I've got time for one last question. Hi, Tim. Hi, mate. Um, I was just wondering, your, uh, uh, the, the Lady Storm from your uh, song, I was just wondering if that was based on a real occasion and if anyone's wound you up as much as that uh, <laughs> recently. I was thinking especially because you've just been to America. Yeah. Um, well, California is full of storms. Um, uh, storms are a, a, a straw woman I built to burn um, in a poem. So I, I basically bestowed upon her uh, every sort of fallacious piece of reasoning and then proceed to rather conceitedly um, tear her down. It, it, it works. I'm not ashamed of building a straw woman, but um, uh, Storm. I had. A, I went to a dinner party that was sort of a little bit like that, where towards the end of the night, this girl started talking about homeopathy, and uh, I didn't say anything. I just sat there fuming, and um, <laughs> and then went home and wrote wrote what I wish. I. But of course, you don't. I I don't want to be a person at a dinner party that ruins it. Um, so that's why I do comedy, so I can do it in my safe space. Um, but I, I don't get wound up um, that much anymore. I, uh, I find um, uh, I'm probably most wound up by, by religious people just because um, I don't know what they're talking about. I just don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> don't understand. Just don't understand. Well, um, it's been uh, wonderful for all of us that you can use um, your anger and you're getting worked out to write such funny material. So, um, so Tim, um, thank you ever so much for talking to us and thank you all for being such a lovely audience. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thanks.